Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. Rupesh is here with you again. I've been curious about this topic for a long time, tried to find a guest, and I think I found the perfect one. But let me tell you what I'm curious about today. I've always been wondering about whether our diet, our nutrition, whether that has an effect on our genes, or whether there's something about our genes that affects how we actually digest and metabolize certain kind of foods. It's uh, this age-old question of nature versus nurture, I guess, but I have someone that I wanted to bring in to talk to you about this topic, and that is Dr. Ahmed El-Sahemi. Ahmed, welcome to Two Donuts. Appreciate having you today. Ahmed's a professor from the University of Toronto. He's the founder and chief scientific officer of Nutrigenomics. Ahmed, thanks for joining me. Appreciate having you today. That's my pleasure. Um, so I don't know if many people know what Nutrigenomics actually is. I think you can probably kind of put those two words together and figure it out, but Maybe maybe it might be worth having you explain it for people. Sure. Well, as as the name implies, it's uh, a branch of science that deals with the interface between nutrition and our genetic makeup. And as you uh, pointed out just a, a moment ago, uh, there's really two sides of the coin. There's how nutrition impacts our genes and how mm. nutrients turn on and turn off certain genes. Uh, and then the flip side is how variations in our genes, those single letter alterations in our genetic code, how those affect the way we metabolize uh, different foods and nutrients and, and bioactives that uh, we consume. And is it, would you say that this is a relatively new science? Like are, are people catching on to this or um, it, has, it been, has it been around for a while? Well, the concept that, um, <clears throat> you know, what's good for one person might actually be harmful for somebody else uh, has been known for a very long time. In, mm. in fact, one of the earliest references comes from uh, the first century BC, where mm. Lucretius noted that one man's food is another man's poison. Mm. Uh, and even before that, uh, Hippocrates noted 2,500 years ago that positive health requires knowledge of man's primary constitution, which is really just an old-fashioned way of saying genetic makeup. But, you know, we've come a long way, and now with modern developments and, you know, molecular genetics and genomics, uh, we can now pinpoint, you know, specific regions in our genome uh, that can help us understand why that is the case. What what would you say was the catalyst for when research into this area started to really take off? So for the in terms of you know kind of the way nutrigenomics is currently being applied, uh, mm. I'd say that started off maybe around twenty years ago. Uh, mm. That was uh, just shortly after I started my faculty position at the University of Toronto, and it was around the time of the first draft sequence of the human genome when it was publicized. Okay. Uh, yep. You recall, you know, headlines all over the world. We've yep. now decoded, you know, our, our genetic makeup. Uh, but then there was obviously interest in figuring out, okay, what do all these letters mean? And yeah. when you do have a change in a letter, uh, nucleotide, how does that impact our risk of disease or how we interact with our environment? So I'd say really in the past 20 years, uh, 15 to 20 years is when it really started to uh, to take off. And your your story into it. So, 
is that would you were you always interested in genetics would you say or or was it nutrition or how did how did you kind of get into this well, I was personally interested in nutrition. So when I, mm. when I started off as a, as an undergraduate, you know, I thought, you know, doing well in science and, and, uh, and math, I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to go to medical school. Sure. Uh, and then I started, uh, I did a research project one summer, uh, and was really just fascinated by the idea of scientific research where, you know, the, dis- we're doing stuff that no one else in the world is doing and, yeah. and any discoveries that we make are the things that end up going into the medical textbooks that then, you know, get applied. Mm. Uh, And so when I started uh, as a graduate student, I did this experiment involving uh, groups of mice and rats and looking at uh, their effect, the effects of cholesterol. And I got results that were the complete opposite of what another research group found. And at first I thought, you know, maybe I you know, I messed up the experiment, sure. I, you know, yeah. which the diets or whatever. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, we determined that that was not the case. And it turns out the only difference between our experiment and, and the one that was done before is the strain of rat that was used. That's kind mm. of like, you know, breeds of dogs or just different, yeah. you know, groups of humans. Yeah. So I thought, well, if a genetic difference can explain how, you know, why two different rats respond so differently Then surely genetic differences explain what can explain why two humans can respond very differently. Mm. Uh, and so at the time there was really very few people in the world that were doing that kind of research, integrating genetics into a nutrition study design. Uh, yeah. So then I, I, when I finished my PhD, I went to uh, Harvard to work with one of the few groups that was doing that kind of research. Uh, mm-hmm. And then brought it back when I established my lab at U of T in uh, in two thousand. That's really cool. That uh, that sort of um, that seems so simple, like that 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 experiment. But it was so like revolutionary for you, right? To be able to see that the the difference in genetic makeup of those rats, um, you know, may have, uh, was was really the the causal causal factor there. Mm-hmm. Um, when you started your lab then what were the what were those first kind of research questions that really interested you well one of the uh, so i've always been interested in you know kind of the exceptions to the rules right usually okay. when we do a, a study you know we compare group averages and if we st- yeah. if we find a statistical difference between one group versus another we say okay our intervention had an effect um, but there's always this variation in response and you know, there's almost always some outlier and, Mm -hmm. and we used to try to figure out, you know, how to get rid of them from the statistical analysis to say, you know what, these are statistical outliers. We don't want them. But to me, those were the most interesting. It's like, why Mm -hmm. is, you know, this one or person or these two or three people, why are they responding in such an exaggerated manner or in the opposite direction? So, um, you know, one day when I was in Boston and uh, I was, you know, making some coffee and, and my cousin uh, who uh, moved down there from uh, from California, um, you know, I offered him some coffee and he's like, nah, you know, I don't, I don't like it. It makes me feel jittery and anxious. And I'm yeah. like, oh, I, I don't feel that way. Um, and that got me thinking, you know, caffeine, right? We know that there's people that you know, we're so-called or self-proclaimed caffeine addicts and can't get their day started without a cup of coffee and, you know, would could walk around with an IV connected to co- coffee if they <laughs> right. could. Uh, whereas others, you know, they avoid it like the plague. It makes them jittery, anxious, nervous. 
and so I got interested in trying to figure out why that is. And in those who were working in the field of caffeine metabolism, uh, the gene that was responsible for the breakdown of caffeine was identified. Uh, but there was never a connection to you know, how that explains why some people respond differently. Mm. Uh, so we did the study to look at uh, the link between coffee and heart disease, which there had been dozens of studies looking at this, but you know they were inconsistent. Some studies showing coffee is good for you, some showing coffee is bad for you, others showing coffee doesn't do anything. Uh, so we thought, okay, well, this is a great opportunity to look to see if genetics can explain these inconsistencies. Uh, and, you know, we, we lucked out by identifying the right genetic variant that can explain that. And that was a, you know, kind of a landmark study that we published in JAMA, uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, yeah. back in 2006. Uh, and it was the kind of thing that, you know, made a lot of headlines because, you know, it was really the first to show that, you know, this widely consumed beverage um, that apparently had inconsistent findings in terms of whether it was good for us or bad for us, uh, that it could be explained by, you know, possibly a simple genetic test. Yeah, the caffeine one's interesting. I, I'm definitely on the side of if I even have a little bit of green tea, even like later in the, later in the, uh, during the day, I can get jittery. Um, and so I don't know if my sensitivity, uh, what that's the cause of, but what, what were like, what are some in other interesting findings around caffeine that you've noticed? Well, first of all, what was interesting is that, you know, this gene that we showed, uh, it can explain why coffee could be good for you or bad for you, has nothing to do with how caffeine makes you feel. Okay. So usually when you consume a caffeinated beverage, you can feel the stimulating effects of caffeine when it binds to uh, what are called adenosine receptors in the central mm. nervous system. Right, that's mm -hmm. what keeps you alert and, and what causes that those those acute stimulating effects. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of whether it's harmful or not to the cardiovascular system or your kidneys or other organ systems, uh, that's determined by this gene in the liver that's called CYP1A2 that helps mm -hmm. clear caffeine from the system. So even though you might feel, you know, jittery or anxious after a small amount of caffeine, it doesn't necessarily mean that coffee is bad for you. Right? Okay. And so, you know, this idea that, oh, well, just listen to your body, right? Because if it tells mm. you, I mean, obviously, if it's an unpleasant feeling like anxiety, mm. then sure, you know, you should limit it. Yep. There's a lot of people where coffee, you know, just makes them feel great, but mm it's actually harmful for them because mm. uh, their body's not able to get rid of it efficiently and it actually causes harmful effects to the cardiovascular system, the kidneys now, which we showed in a, in a study that was published just a couple of months ago. Uh, and other researchers have demonstrated this as well with hypertension and prediabetes. Um, a growing number of studies now all showing the same thing that if you have this particular version of this gene that makes you effectively a slow metabolizer of caffeine, then you have to limit your coffee intake to less than two cups a day. Uh, otherwise, you're going to you know, have a higher risk of all those conditions. Uh, but so, it, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, but if you're part of the other... 50% of the population who are considered fast metabolizers, mm. coffee might actually be beneficial or, or protective. Okay. I want to hear that point as well. If I heard you correctly, um, 
the this whole notion of of uh, trust your body. Um, like you said, if you're if you're not feeling so great, maybe uh, and, it, and it's causing a negative feeling, maybe it might not want to uh, um, uh, con- continue to consume that caffeine. But just because you are feeling really good around caffeine, if you have this gene and this gene determines how you're metabolizing it, if you're not metabolizing it well, you actually might not want, you might want to limit your caffeine, even though you might be feeling good around it. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can listen to our bodies up to a certain extent, uh, certainly when it comes to recognizing that, you know, you experience some adverse symptoms, uh, yeah. lactose intolerance is a, another classic example right? Yeah. I mean, there's a gene for that and there's a genetic test to determine it, but a lot of people don't need it because they know that if they consume uh, lactose containing dairy, you yeah. know, they'll start experiencing gas and diarrhea and, right. and those kinds right. of symptoms. So definitely, you know, you want to avoid that. So uh, limit your intake of, of lactose in those cases. You said caffeine can have a protective benefit. What, what's that protective benefit? So it's probably something else in coffee that mm. might be protective. Okay. So in, in the half of the population that we would describe as basically fast metabolizers of caffeine, they get mm. rid of caffeine efficiently. And so what's left are a bunch of other substances in coffee. Mm. Have this, uh, coffee is actually an excellent source of antioxidants, mm. these polyphenols and compounds that might have cardioprotective effects. So because you're able to get rid of the, the bad caffeine efficiently, that leaves you with some of these other goodies that might actually be uh, protective, but it's not likely the caffeine itself. It's something else in coffee in particular. Yeah. Do you know if, um, cause I mean, I, I imagine, I think anyways, there are some cultures that are, you know, drink coffee more than others. Um, do you, do you have a sense of whether certain demographics in the world or certain cultures have this gene, um, prevalent more than others? Yeah. Great question. And, 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 you know, this is one that, you know, we've, we've, um, you know, talked about trying to kind of map out. Um, yeah. but at, at the end of the day, when it comes to, uh, like a, a survival benefit, um, you know, you really just have to get past the age of, you know, procreating, right? So it's mm. not like there is necessarily a selective advantage. So whether or not you get a, you know, you die of a heart attack in your 50s versus your 70s, um, mm-hmm. that's not really going to impact whether or not a culture continues to consume uh, coffee as, you know, part of their traditions or not. So, so the short answer is there's no direct correlation between, you know, cultures that consume uh, coffee, uh, and any kind of, you know, survival or, or benefit that they might have. Yeah. Interesting. Cause we had, um, so about almost, almost a year and a half ago, I had Dr. Emma Allen Verko on the podcast and she deals with the microbiome and she was saying how, um, from a microbiome perspective that certain cultures have a unique, unique footprint that's, that's, um, you know, continues in their cultures and their lineage, and they can metabolize and digest foods that other cultures can't or other people can't. Um, any, any studies or any interaction or any thought about the interaction of, of, um, like your genetics and the microbiome? And are you looking into that at all? Yeah, there's a, like, it's a fascinating area. Just the yeah. fact that, you know, we've only recently uh, uncovered this idea that there are more bacterial cells than mammalian cells in our body. Mm. And just the diversity of the kinds of bacteria that colonize the gut. Uh, but what's very interesting is that uh, there's also emerging evidence to suggest that 
the host genome, meaning our genetic makeup, uh, mm -hmm. determines to some extent the type of bacteria that colonize the gut. Interesting. Uh, and so this could explain why, you know, to some extent, uh, studies on probiotics have not really been very successful because when you stop taking the probiotic, which is a bacterial culture, mm. uh, the body tends to revert back to a particular microbial composition, uh, which mm. perhaps might be more consistent with that individual's genetics. So um, again, you know, the more we learn, the more we realize we don't know as much as we thought we did. So yeah. it's quite possible that, you know, for one person based on their genetic makeup, that a particular microbiome might be more beneficial or advantageous uh, compared mm. to someone else. So again, it's not one size fits all. And that I think applies even to the microbiome. Is it possible that uh, through your nutrition, like we know the microbiome would respond based on, um, based on what you're eating, uh, could your genetics, could that, could those genes though, like that, I said, like the host genome, um, could that change so that eventually like your microbiome adjusts to that, if that makes sense? Yeah. I mean, so even though we cannot change the sequence of our genetic makeup, uh, okay. outside of like CRISPR technology and things like that, yeah. Yeah. uh, but we can change the expression of genes. So mm. there are things that you can do, uh, like, you know, the gene that metabolizes caffeine, uh, we know that cruciferous vegetables, things like broccoli and cauliflower, mm. can actually increase the activity of that enzyme by uh, by inducing the expression of the gene. Uh, so there are some strategies, uh, dietary uh, approaches to altering the expression of of these genes that can also interact with the with the microbiome. Maybe let's step back for a second. When you say altering the expression of these genes, I wonder if people are thinking. Like, is that an immediate thing that happens? What are really the implications of that? Like, like how much of a, like, what's the, how long does someone have to be eating a certain way for, for these genes to all of a sudden start to express in a different way? Like maybe walk people through how that, how that all works. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really depends on the gene. Uh, so okay. some genes are what we would call inducible meaning they can be turned on quite rapidly and very quickly, uh, whereas others, it's a more gradual and slower induction. Mm. Um, so, I mean, smoking, even though it's not a dietary factor, is mm. known to be a strong inducer of the gene that metabolizes caffeine. Uh, so, you know, even just probably a, you know, a few puffs of a cigarette can really jack up the activity of that enzyme uh, yeah. that breaks down caffeine because it also metabolizes a lot of substances in tobacco smoke. Uh, so it's not that it's specific to caffeine, um, but it, you know, again, it metabolizes a bunch of other uh, substances. So again, I think it, it depends on the biological system and the pathway in which genes we're talking about. But uh, basically, yeah, there are things that can be done to alter uh, the you know, again, when I say expression, meaning how much of that gene is active and how much mm. of the product is produced, like whether it's an enzyme, if the gene codes for a receptor, or if the gene codes for, a, you know, a cellular transporter, things like that. 
when you when you hear like i i feel like i, I might be a, a good case study here like i always say well i think i have all these kind of sensitivities these dietary sensitivities like i don't feel like i process gluten for instance really well like with with dairy like it's not even just the lactose it's the um the casein and the way that i don't digest really well what do you like i mean some of these things are there are a lot of fad diets out there all that sort of thing um i feel better without these things mm-hmm. uh but what do you I imagine it's a nuanced response, Ahmed, but what do you say about when, when people say they have all these sensitivities and such, like, where does your mind go? Yeah. I mean, as you point out, there are a lot of fad diets, um, and, and whether they're for weight loss largely, or whether Mm. they're for, you know, just, um, overall wellness and kind of feeling better. Um, and, and the reason why a lot of these fad diets persist is because they actually work in some people. So the Mm. question is, how do I know if it works for me? Well, when it comes to weight loss, uh, things like, you know, the Atkins diet or keto Mm. diet, things that promote a high protein diet for weight loss, there's actually a gene that can predict response to a high protein diet. And there've been randomized controlled clinical trials showing that uh, multiple trials actually, uh, and in different ethnic groups, and we've published on this as well, that if you have this version of, it's called the FTO gene, then you are more likely to lose weight and lose body fat in particular uh, when you consume a high protein diet. And if you don't have that version of the gene, there's absolutely no benefit of going on this high protein diet. So that's an example of where we can use genetics and really yeah. take, a, take away the guesswork of whether or not something is likely to work or not. Is it perfect? No but it's certainly better than the current, you know, one size fits all approach. But when it comes to things like, you know, um, perceived food sensitivities or intolerances, um, there's a lot that, you know, we're, we're just still learning. Um, Mm. you know, there are people that claim to have, um, a histamine intolerance. Histamine is a substance that's found in foods. It's also produced in the body from certain amino acids, Uh, And there's a gene for that as well that metabolizes histamine. Uh, And we're actually doing research now to look to see if uh, these genetic variations in the metabolism of histamine can explain why some people have, you know, a so-called histamine intolerance. Um, But for those who have struggled with various, you know, unknown ailments that, um, you know, it's, it's just a natural reaction to think that it has something to do with, you know, what I'm eating. Uh, and sometimes when they go see like a registered dietitian, uh, they often start them off on what's called an, an elimination diet by yep. saying, okay, yep. well, let's just kind of cut everything back down to just some very basic, easily digestible foods, and then gradually introduce, um, you know, suspected foods to see if that is causing anything. And I think there's been some success in that approach, um, mm-hmm. but it's not definitive, right? I mean, you mentioned gluten. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we know that, you know, celiac disease um, is still largely undiagnosed. About 80, mm-hmm. 80% of the population um, who have, sorry, 80% of cases, 80% of those who have celiac disease don't know they have it uh, mm-hmm. because it doesn't, uh, manifest in the 
classical symptoms of, you know, diarrhea and, you know, failure to thrive as a child, but, right. you know, they experience brain fog or joint yeah, pains yeah. or yeah. neurological issues. Um, yeah. And it's not until they, you know, a, you know, a, a, an astute physician will actually order a test and say, okay, well, let's at least try to rule it out. Mm. Um, so sometimes, you know, people will go on a so-called gluten-free diet and say, oh yeah, I feel wonderful. Mm. Well, is it the gluten or is it the fact that they've just stopped eating, you know, heaping plates of pasta and sure. know, processed white bread? So yep. um, gluten is in so many things, you know, salad yep. dressing, sauces. Yep. Yep. Um, so it's important to really understand, is it that specific substance or is it something else in my diet that I change that's responsible for this? Yeah. There's also like, I don't know if you've heard stories of people go to Europe and they start to have you know, wheat and gluten there. And for some reason they're able to, they feel okay digesting it there. And here for some reason, North America, they can't. And I, I don't know what's, what's behind that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what to make of that quite yet. I mean, I can tell you that, you know, absolutely foods that are grown just in different soil, right. I'm thinking mm. of tomatoes in particular. Um, mm. you know, there are actually a few hundred varieties of tomatoes, but we go to the supermarket mm. and we have, you know, maybe three or four, right? Yeah. You know, plum yeah. tomato, hothouse, what have you. Yeah. Um, and so the chemical composition of those are quite different and depending on, you know, again, the, the conditions that they're grown in, uh, but gluten is gluten specifically. So the, you know, the chemical structure of that protein uh, and it, it either causes a reaction in those who have the genetic predisposition for celiac disease or it mm. doesn't, right? And so celiac disease uh, is similar in Europeans as in North Americans and, and others. Um, but it could be something else in the food because, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we, you know, we'd like to think that, you know, genetically modified foods are pretty much identical because it's just accelerating, you know, natural selection and just inserting mm. genes. Um, but we don't really know that. Right. And, and mm. until you actually look at the, you know, complete chemical composition of those foods. Um, and there've been some examples from, you know, over, over time showing that, you know, some genetically modified potatoes actually started producing this, you know, toxic substance, solanine. And, um, and so, yeah, we can't be so confident that to say, oh no, it's, you know, it's the same everywhere we don't know what we don't know. So I think anytime you hear of these stories, I think they're worth investigating. You bring up, well, actually what I was going to ask you next is just around not only GMO foods, but just the impact of, um, I mean, organic foods doesn't mean that they don't have herbicides or whatever, like they're not, but they, but just thinking about non-organic foods and the pesticides that are like, what effect could that have on gene expression? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, exposure to pesticides, we know that pesticides do cause changes in the expression of a number of genes, mm. uh, including the genes that metabolize them, right? Because the body recognizes them as foreign chemicals and it just naturally tries to get rid of them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, people choose organic foods for different reasons. Uh, mm. I mean, I, I don't myself seek out organic foods, but I've, I've tried some that just taste 
different, right? They actually yeah. taste yeah. wow. It's like, okay, so for me, it's the, it's the taste factor that, you know, will, yeah. you know, have me justify paying twice the amount for, mm. you know, organic eggs or organic tomatoes. Mm. But uh, mm. from a health benefit, I think, again, we still, we, we don't know enough to, uh, to say definitively that they're superior because there are, you know, there's some evidence that, you know, again, based on the type of fertilizer that's used, you know, mm. there might be a higher risk of foodborne illnesses. So, um, again, organic isn't always necessarily better. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's a, that's a huge area of research that we still need to know more information about. Um, what about centarians? The, like, and I wonder, uh, I was just watching something yesterday where, um, uh, centarians in, I think it was Sard- Sardinia in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, watching how they eat but then you know there's centurions all over the world and they have a certain a unique diet you know um has there been any work or studies on uh, from a nutrigenomic standpoint on centurions yeah i mean it's uh i've always been fascinated really in in you know kind of longevity and yeah. um you know, there's this popular book called Blue Zones uh, yeah, by yeah. Dan Butner. Uh, we both actually spoke at a conference in, in San Francisco a number of years ago, and he gives a brilliant talk. Um, and he talks about, you know, these these pockets of centenarians that are, as you say, in Sardinia. Uh, there's the, you know, the Mormons in Utah, um, mm. Japanese in Okinawa, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, a few other um, you know, kind of blue zones. Um, and again, his book is really fascinating. I mean, he talks about how, you know, obviously their diet is, their diets are not the same, right? So there's no yep. common commonality between, you know, the diet of someone in Okinawa versus Sardinia. Um, it's, it really has to do a lot about, you know, just having a purpose of life and, and always engaging in physical activity mm. and having a strong social network, but also their diet is relatively, um, you know, what we'd call a healthy diet, right? I mean, Okinawans, I think, believe in the concept of eat until you're 80% full. Mm. And that's something that, you know, people have a hard time doing, right? <laughs> I, mean, I know yeah. myself, right? You know, yeah. I'll eat until I feel full. Um, that's just a kind of almost a, a normal human reaction, but it just illustrates the concept that we don't need to eat as much as we think we do, because, mm. you know, if you wait a little bit longer, you will feel, you know, satiated even after stopping when you're 80% full. Um, but there, there was, um, uh, uh, these two physicians who actually trained at, in my department. University of Toronto, who uh, did research on Okinawans and and looked at both genetics and their diet. And and there were a number of interesting observations. But again, because it's already a unique, um, somewhat homogeneous genetic population, you can't really compare their genetics to anybody else because it could just be, you know, the gene for, you know, eye color or stature or something else that is just, you know, more common there than somewhere else. So, um, Research on longevity now is really, I think, increasing, and and we're beginning to learn more about how uh, some of these common genetic variants can explain mm. uh, why some people can live to be a hundred, um, given the right environment and and obviously the right diet. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, I want to shift a little bit to your your company, and uh, you know, personalized medicine is something that's continues to grow, and people are interested in 
and having these sort of specialized tests for themselves and are trying to make all kinds of health decisions sometimes on their own, uh, unfortunately. And I want to talk about sort of, you know, personalized medicine and, and the healthcare system, because I think that's sort of an emerging disruptor for sure. Um, but tell us about, uh, tell us about Nutrigenomics, the, the company and, uh, and what drove you to want to start that and, and just about the testing in general, maybe. Sure. So, um, so Nutrigenomics spelt with an X at the end. Okay. That's yep. the name of the company as opposed to CS, the, the science, even though it sounds yeah. the same. Um, we established that uh, just over 11 years ago uh, as a University of Toronto startup, but then you know we now have our own office and uh, we actually have offices in a number of different countries. Mm. Um, we developed the um, world's first genetic test for personalized nutrition uh, to be available only through healthcare professionals. And that was a conscious decision because, you know, even though, again, as a U of T startup, we had access to all kinds of business advisors and they said, oh, you know, you got to go direct to consumer because that's the way to get, you know, the biggest Mm -hmm. market share. Uh, But my view was, you know, we need to educate essentially the educators who are the practitioners, the physicians, Mm -hmm. the dietitians, um, those who individuals who are concerned about either weight loss or, you know, family history of heart disease and and understanding, do I need to avoid or cut back on coffee or not? Or, you know, how much sodium can I consume? Uh, And we felt that that's the most responsible way to uh, deliver this kind of information. Um, We now have a team of in-house dietitians. So people often come to us and say, oh, my you know, my dietitian doesn't offer this service or my doctor doesn't know uh, about it. So, yeah. you know, can you connect me? And and we can connect them to dietitians either in their area or, uh, or virtually. Mm. Uh, and really the motivation behind that was, you know, when I, when I, so I've been doing research, I was doing research for, what was it, at least, you know, 12 or 13 years before, uh, you know, I decided to launch this company with, uh, the support of colleagues from around the world in this field who make up our science advisory board. And part of the motivation was really to restore credibility to the field. Mm. So, I mean, I, I never grew up wanting to become a, an entrepreneur or otherwise I wouldn't have gone into this field of sure. getting a PhD yeah. and, you know, doing research, fundamental research for over a decade. Um, but then we saw, you know, a couple of these companies that were selling genetic tests online and linking them to overpriced supplements that were just ridiculous. Mm. Okay, now you got to buy this $50 bottle of vitamin C when someone can go to a drugstore and buy it for $5. Right. Um, And it really tainted the field. Mm. Uh, And so our view is, you know, we want to restore credibility and say, okay, here are the markers. This is the evidence and this is what it tells you and this is what it doesn't tell you. Uh, and so, you know, again, we, we've kind of grown organically that way by, um, providing, you know, educational resources and, and, uh, webinars and speaking at conferences uh, all over the world. Um, I think at last count, I've given just over 300 talks and, and whenever I, I would talk about the science, uh, invariably someone would, you know, raise their hand and say, you know, how can I get tested or, you know, where can I get this test? Uh, yeah. And I would always say, well, you know, we can't just yet because the science is still in its infancy and we need to see these studies replicated. Uh, so that was kind of during the first, you know, 10 or 12 years of my career. But then as the science was replicated, um, we realized that there's an opportunity again in 
translating those discoveries. There's no point in doing research if it just sits in you know some uh, you know stuffy academic journal and and doesn't have any application to actually benefit uh, society. So um, even though it is a for-profit venture, uh, again, that was never really the motivation. So we actually fund and support research at uh, other universities from around the world. Uh, and because we want to encourage more of the kind of discovery that, you know, we and others have, have made in this field. That's amazing. Um, yeah, that's interesting that, so, so uh, that makes a lot of sense as far as why you wanted to, uh, why you want the testing to be, uh, um, requested through a healthcare professional, um, is so, is there any sort of barrier though? Like, I mean, sometimes, sometimes physicians, they don't want to do a lot of this extra testing. Right. Um, and, uh, it, it really creates a real compromised situation for the patient where they're feeling like they have to argue for, for certain things and, and, and doctors don't want to do it. And, um, how do you overcome that barrier with, with your testing? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think that that applies to, you know, not only physicians, but but even, you know, some, you know, classically trained dietitians who yeah. are like, you know what, I didn't learn this in school. So yeah. this seems kind of disruptive and, and, you know, it kind of makes them a little bit uncomfortable. But, you know, we we recently have had some some dietitians that have signed up for an account and, you know, we have this kind of standard question of, you know, tell us how you heard about us. And one mm-hmm. just recently in the past few months said, oh, I heard Dr. Elsa Hemi give a talk at this conference in 2012, mm. a decade ago. Wow. Uh, and that's when we first launched. Uh, and they weren't ready back then. But now as they see their colleagues uh, offering the service, they realize that, okay, that's kind of taking away a bit of that barrier. And some mm. of these dietitians are saying, okay, well, if she can do it, then, you know, maybe I can do it as well. Uh, and so there is that, and it, the same applies to physicians as well, right? Where, you know, if, if a patient went to them and said, oh, well, you're telling me to cut back on coffee, you know, my cardiologist, you're telling me to cut back on coffee, but here's a study in JAMA showing that if I'm a fast metabolizer, it might actually be protected. Because obviously, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're challenging their ego and they're not going to want to think that they don't know something. 100%. So they'll yeah. just dismiss it and say, oh, no, yeah. it's bogus yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and that's why, again, we continue to provide these educational opportunities, uh, either through, you know, giving talks at conferences. I mean, mm-hmm. I continue to be asked to give talks at, uh, various state dietetics conferences and, and national yeah. and international conferences, both in, you know, the general medical sciences, as well as specialized fields. Uh, and again, I think it's just something that over time, as you begin to educate them, there are a, a growing number of physicians that now offer this test as part of their practice, Mm. Um, mainly in the the United States uh, and other countries where uh, they're used to kind of a cash pay system. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, there are some insurance companies that actually cover uh, the cost of at least of a dietitian consult. So that can at least offset a Mm. partial uh, amount of of the testing. Um, And yeah, I mean, this is you know, we talk about fad diets, but this is not some passing fad. Like this you know, there's no way that we're going to go back to one size fits all. Mm-hmm. I mean, the genie is out of the bottle. So yeah. you either, you know, get on with it uh, and and educate yourself and learn about the science and how it can be applied, or you'll be 
you know, viewed as a dinosaur and left in, mm. in, you know, in the dark ages. How, how useful is knowing this information? So like, I don't know if you have any examples of like when, you know, a patient does this testing and then what they do with that information, but like maybe, maybe something practical, if you're able to explain something, explain to people, like how useful is this information really? Sure. I mean, there's no point in giving kind of my own opinion on how useful it is. So I would refer to the scientific literature and the mm. evidence. Yeah. Uh, and there's actually been randomized controlled clinical trials that have compared the effects of giving DNA-based dietary advice to mm -hmm. the, the current standard of care. Uh, and we conducted the very first study in this field to show that giving DNA-based dietary advice actually improves compliance. So the advice that you're giving, they're more likely to follow it. That alone, I think, is a huge win, right? Because you can tell someone to cut back on sodium until you're blue in the face. Yeah. But when you tell them, look, based on your genetics, you will really benefit from reducing your sodium, they mm. actually follow that advice and listen to it compared to just mm. telling them, yeah, Health Canada tells you you got to lower your sodium intake. Uh, other research groups have gone a step further and shown that giving DNA-based dietary advice on top of the an already gold standard weight loss program results in greater reductions in body fat. Because again, not only are they more likely to follow that advice and stick to it, but based on their unique metabolism, which is governed by their genetics, yeah. they actually respond better to whether it's a high protein diet or low carb diet. So mm. you're tailoring the recommendations to their unique physiology. Um, and again, there's just a growing body of evidence that, uh, again, many physicians and, and even dietitians aren't yet aware of just how robust this scientific evidence is. Yeah. Um, apologies if you're hearing steps, steps above me. That's my daughter playing up there. So apologies for the the loud booms there um in in canada so you talked about some insurance companies in the states are, are maybe um covering parts of it at least the diet the the consultation in canada um i imagine that provincial healthcare systems um are not covering this is that true that, correct i mean they they i think just need to see the cost benefit analysis uh yeah. I mean, in ontario it wasn't until just about a year ago that testing for celiac disease was covered. So can you imagine just two years ago, if you know you were suspected of having celiac disease, you had to pay 60 or $70 out of your pocket. Um, so fortunately, that's now at least being covered. Um, but you know, to say that they're going to cover a genetic test, you know, we're definitely a long ways away from that. But in virtually every province, I think, we have what's called a newborn screening program, yes, meaning yeah. that you know every infant that's born undergoes a battery of tests mm. that we used to call genetic disorders, but mm. the vast majority of them, about 70%, are actually managed by dietary means. Uh, so you know a condition called PKU, uh, which is an inborn error in the metabolism of an amino acid that's relatively innocuous, except for someone who has uh, an impaired ability to metabolize it, and then it builds up to toxic levels. So they have to monitor uh, the, uh, you know, the quantity and the quality of protein that they consume. 
Uh, and that's kind of like a classic example of, you know, the application of the science. You asked me at the beginning of our conversation, you know, when did this really take off? And I said about 20 years ago, that's yeah. from the kind of the current form of nutrigenomics. Uh, but going back several decades ago before that, uh, and a lot of those fundamental discoveries were actually made in Canada uh, by Dr. Charles Scriver at McGill, uh, mm. where he made many of these discoveries about inborn errors in metabolism. Uh, and because of that, again, every child that's born undergoes these tests. Now, they're not exactly, uh, even though they have a genetic basis, it's not a DNA test because it's just more efficient to do uh, like a blood test or a urine test. You know, every kid right. gets a heel prick to get measure their blood and you just measure the metabolites because it's just more efficient to do that than to look at, you know, the complete genetic sequence. But the concept is the same. And clearly there was a decision at some point that showed that the cost of testing everybody, the benefit that just identifying, you know, one in 500 or one in a thousand who can benefit the savings on the healthcare system, the savings on their quality of life and their family's quality of life um, is clearly demonstrating that it's it's uh, beneficial to do that. I think we just need to demonstrate that as well uh, for this more kind of um, the current form of nutritional genomics, which isn't looking at you know, acute disease for a child, but it's looking at long-term risk of, you know, heart disease. So uh, avoiding getting a heart attack in your 50s and mm -hmm. even though it's something that you start doing to your diet early on, uh, showing that that has benefits to society. Do you think, so is this testing ready to be a standard test in our, in our healthcare system or do you think there's still more work to be done? And I guess if, if you think it is ready, um, have there, are there conversations happening? Are you, are you aware of these, this happening that, you know, they, they want to, they do want to use this testing? Yeah. So I, I would say it's, I mean, obviously I'm biased. I would sure. say it, yeah. it absolutely is ready. I think it was yeah. ready if, you know, several years ago, yeah. uh, but in terms of decisions, um, you know, at the ministry of health level to, mm -hmm. to, to make that, I think we're very far away from that. Mm. In fact, uh, I would say what would need to be implemented first, because this is something that physicians can relate to more, uh, is the field of pharmacogenetics, where just like okay. nutrition, people respond yep. differently to diets, people respond differently to drugs and medications, ah, yeah. right? Uh, and that's also a, a very robust science. Uh, hmm. And there are some health systems in the United States, some hospital systems that absolutely have a robust pharmacogenetics program. Every patient that comes into certain divisions and they've demonstrated, um, you know, decreased mortality. I mean, it doesn't get stronger than that as an outcome, right? We have all these blockbuster drugs that yeah. you know, work wonders on average, but when you look at them, they only actually benefit maybe, you know, 60% of the population. Hmm. Another 30% might not benefit. And yet there's perhaps this 10% who actually experience adverse drug reactions. Uh, and adverse drug reactions are, I think, the, the fifth or sixth leading cause of death. You can imagine yeah, wow. you go to a hospital uh, and the medication that you're prescribed actually is responsible for, you know, causing a worse off condition or, or, or death, which is, you know, kind of the ultimate outcome. 
So uh, that's interesting. That's another topic for me to dig into. Yeah. Uh, so you're saying that they're um, potentially there's they're like similar to foods. There are certain drugs that people just uh, are able to metabolize and process better be, based on their ge- genetic makeup. Absolutely. I mean, and, and there's yeah. a, a kind of a, the classic example there is warfarin, which is a blood thinner, yeah. Uh, yeah. and based on your genotype, you have three possibilities. Uh, the recommended dose is either, I think it's one, two, or four milligrams. Uh, and that has been shown to be kind of the ideal, you know, prescribing level based on an individual's uh, genetics so that mm-hmm. they avoid, you know, kind of excessive bleeding. Um, yeah. But the same concept applies to just about every drug. Um, there are some um, analgesics some painkillers that just don't work in some people. Uh, and then there are others that it works too much so that, you know, they, they should actually cut back on their dose because then you start experiencing some of these uh, adverse uh, symptoms. Uh, a lot of the cholesterol lowering medications cause uh, what's called rhabdomyolysis, uh, a muscle uh, uh, condition. But there's a gene for that. And if you test yeah. for it, you can say, a physician can say, okay, well, I'm going to put you on a different class of, mm. of a statin because your body is not uh, good at metabolizing that. So uh, yeah, absolutely. The whole field of pharmacogenetics. So the reason why I kind of went off on this tangent is because you know, you asked me the question about whether or not this is something that, that nutrigenomics is going to be integrated into health systems. Mm. And I would say pharmacogenomics is a little bit more advanced in terms of, mm. because it's easier to study, right? Drugs yeah. are very yeah. specific chemicals uh, yeah. and they're metabolized by very specific enzymes or genes that yeah. are, um, you know, unlike foods where, well, do you know it's the caffeine or how do you know it's sure. not something else in coffee? Yeah. So even though we're getting there with, with food, and I think we still have good evidence, right? We talk about protein and some who benefit from a high protein diet. The mm-hmm. next question is, oh, well, is it plant protein or is it animal protein? Mm-hmm. What kind of protein? You know, we, we can get there eventually, but right now we're just saying protein in general because that's what mm-hmm. the evidence is showing. Uh, but when it comes to drugs, we're talking about very specific compounds. And I think until we start seeing that being uh, integrated into the healthcare system, I think, you know, nutrigenomics might just have to wait a little bit longer. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I, I mean, I, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's uh, unfortunate, though, because I mean, they're, um, well, I mean, I, I, I'm sure I speak for many people who don't want to take a lot of pharmaceuticals, right, or, or want to use food as their main source of, of health and wellness and, and medicine for that matter. Right. So it's unfortunate that it would have to be, you know, the, the pharma- pharmaceutical side first before the nutrigenomic side second. So, but, uh, I understand what, why that is. Um, if, so if folks do want to get, um, tested through nutrigenomics, um, what would you say would be the best avenue for them? Well, I think if they currently uh, see a, a dietitian, for example, or yep. or even a naturopath, or you know, uh, or their physician, they can ask them. Um, mm. But if not, they can just go to the website, which is Nutrigenomics with an X, uh, yep. and there's a contact us page, and they would just indicate you know the city that they live in uh, and that they're interested in getting a test, uh, and then someone from the office will uh, will connect them to a, a practitioner that uh, that offers it. Yeah, that's fantastic. We'll put all that information in in our show notes. Um, I imagine athletes, though, 
probably are really interested in this if they're not using it already and and what how can athletes take advantage of this and and what have you noticed so far with with those with those patients so we've actually done research in this area of of uh, athletic performance okay uh, and so one of my former phd students um she originally was from vancouver she was the head dietitian for the vancouver olympics and also uh for the pan am games in 2015 mm. Uh, when she joined my lab, she again met me at a conference and said, you know what, I think this is the future of sports nutrition. Yeah, I give my athletes, you know, put them on a certain program. Some of them, you know, do incredibly well. Others, you know, there's hardly any effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously we think it's probably their genetics. So we actually did a study on uh, the genetics of caffeine metabolism uh, mm-hmm. because we know caffeine is a widely used ergogenic aid, uh, especially yep. among endurance athletes. Uh, and we showed that those who have, who are the so-called fast metabolizers, they actually benefit more from caffeine because they get the stimulating effect that it makes them, you know, perform better without the adverse effects on restricting blood flow to the muscles. Mm. Uh, so through Nutrigenomics, we actually have a sport report uh, that covers the same genes as the health report, but it's it speaks more to an athlete in terms of uh, improving performance uh, and uh, enhancing recovery, right? right? So different athletes need different times to recover. Uh, there's also a panel that uh, impacts injury risk. Um, so I've obviously tested myself and I have the elevated risk for Achilles uh, injury. And about, uh, I think maybe 15, 16 years ago, I actually ruptured you know one of my Achilles playing squash. Okay. Um, and then a few years later, ruptured the other one, pushing my car out of the snow. Um, had I known that I had that elevated risk, I perhaps would have been more mindful of, you know, the types of, you know, explosive launches that I would, that I would do in terms of my Achilles being in a particular position that makes it vulnerable to, uh, to rupturing. So, um, there's a lot of work on, on injury, uh, and strategies for reducing injury among, among athletes. And, and we do, we have had a number of professional athletes from, from different sports that have mm. done the test. And, and again, it's not, there's a lot of misconceptions around genetic tests. You know, people are like, Oh, you know, you know, parents are going to want to do a genetic test to see if their kid's going to be the next Usain Bolt. It's not mm. like that. You just have mm. to watch the kid run and you're like, right. But how can we make sure that we can maximize that, you know, genetic potential that they have, right? How can, you know, how much protein should they be consuming? Um, You know, should they be avoiding caffeine? Uh, How much vitamin C do they need to Mm. enhance collagen synthesis in terms of recovery? So it's not predicting athletic potential. It's saying, here's how to maximize Maximize your, your body in terms of performance and recovery. Sorry, I want to make sure I understood this clearly. Um, did you say your test helps you understand, like in your case, you said you had the elevated risk of an Achilles rupture. That testing gave you that information? Absolutely, yeah. So there's a gene okay. uh, that's yeah. con- that affects collagen synthesis. So for yeah. soft tissue injury uh, and those who have uh, are more likely to experience Achilles tendinopathy or Achilles rupture, like mine just snapped. I mean, I even heard it on the squash court. Um, 
that, yeah, there's a gene that makes that kind of tissue uh, vulnerable. It's also wow. a combination of also muscle power. So I happen to have the en- enhanced version for, for muscle power. So I like yeah. to argue that, you know, my muscles are too strong for their tendons. <laughs> uh, but that combination uh, probably is what contributed to that, uh, that rupture. That's very... What are what's the reaction when you when you go and do these conferences and educate people about this? Because this is fascinating. I mean, like, I I definitely didn't know that last piece about the the collagen gene. Um, yeah, what's the reaction from folks? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can't help but be fascinated because yeah. I, that, I mean, that's what drew me to the field when I sure first, yeah you know, made that observation between mice and they were just mice and I'm like, wow, <laughs> this is amazing that these two mice yeah. can respond so differently. And as we you know, translated that work into humans and then just to see that two people can respond so differently. I think a lot of people can relate to this because, you know, they have some kind of personal experience, right? I mean, we have mm-hmm. some experiences with, with food in general. Um, but, you know, again, I teach a whole course on this. And, you know, in one of my first lectures, I, you know, I ask for a show of hands, how many people here uh, can't stand the taste of cilantro? And then, you know, invariably a few hands are going to mm-hmm. go up and like, oh yeah, it tastes like soap or it tastes like dirt. And then I say, okay, how many people think it's the most delicious herb ever created? And then, you know, a lot more people put their hand mm-hmm. up, myself included. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, turns out there's a gene for that, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's an olfactory receptor. So it affects the sense of smell. That's how you can, that's how you perceive the flavor of uh, the various substances in cilantro. So... You know, I explained to them in that very first lecture that imagine if a simple gene can explain why some people will, you know, seek something and completely avoid it. Imagine genes that influence our likes and dislikes of other foods. Yeah. And then imagine all the genes that once we consume them, that affect the way we metabolize them and absorb the nutrients. Mm. Uh, and they obviously, they recognize, oh, this is fascinating because, you know, unlike you know, some other disciplines of science, when we talk about food, it impacts everybody because we all have to eat. Uh, yeah. And, you know, this gets me to another question that often comes up and people say, well, who's a good candidate for, you know, a nutrigenomics test? And my answer is, if you eat and drink and you care about your health, then you're a good candidate. Yeah. It's not about someone who already has heart disease. I mean, they might be more motivated, mm. um, but you know, for those who are ostensibly healthy and they want to stay that way and they mm-hmm. want to know, do I, you know, does saturated fat really have these negative impacts on my body compared to someone else? Do I really need to eliminate as much as someone else? Um, how much vitamin D do I need? Yeah. Um, you know, the idea that, oh, we'll just take a multivitamin. No, that doesn't work. And the evidence shows it doesn't work. Mm. Uh, in fact, there's potential harm in doing that. So this helps you identify which aspects of your diet you need to focus on and which ones perhaps, you know, it's, let's just say it, you know, you're genetically lucky, right? Mm. It doesn't mean you can go to town on sodium and eat mm-hmm. bags of potato chips. That doesn't apply yeah. to anybody. Yeah. But you don't have to be as mindful of that as you do perhaps you know limiting your saturated fat intake Um, we get all kinds of health messages and oftentimes you know people either don't remember them all or they just ignore them but when you give them their genetic report they remember this is what i have elevated risk for i need to make sure i get enough folate whole grains vitamin d and c and i need to limit this and those are the messages that resonate with them and stick with them 
Yeah, and that's why it makes sense why compliance would increase, right? Yeah, exactly. You have that kind of information. Um, it's a lot more motivating, like you said, than than a healthcare professional assuming, uh, you know, providing what they think is tailored advice based on their knowledge. But this is even way more tailored, of course. Um, what do you want the the key takeaway to be for people when it comes to both the science, but I guess then from a testing perspective? Well, from the science, I think um, just appreciating that, you know, what works for one person might not work for somebody else. And mm-hmm. whether we've identified those genes yet or not, um, you know, that takes us to the testing part, right? I mean, there are some other genetic tests out there and, and some aren't so bad, but others I've seen give dangerous advice and just mm-hmm. complete misinterpretation of the science. Um, so that's, you know, it's a bit of a kind of a unfortunately buyer beware. Mm. Uh, but that's why, again, we've chosen to go through healthcare professionals because people do trust their providers. And if mm. they say, yes, this is the best test on the market. This is the only test that's offered by the Cleveland Clinic, Baptist mm-hmm. Health, Frederick Health, and other all kinds of, of, uh, of health systems and clinics. Um, you know, they, they trust that as, as a, a source of information. Uh, so, the science, I mean, again, I think just that recognition that genetics affect the way we respond means we basically have to go back to pretty much everything else that we've ever done in the field of nutrition and to say, okay, sure, we've said on average, you know, beta carotene yep. does this or fiber does that. But now yep. let's look to see, you know, who does it really work for and who perhaps it doesn't. And then let's start moving uh, closer and closer towards that, you know, kind of optimal diet for the individual precision nutrition. Mm. Are we there yet where we can say perfect recommendations for this person and that person? No, but we've moved from just kind of a bell shaped curve an average for a population for Mm -hmm. everyone to say, okay, well now based on these genes, you guys need to do a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that. Uh, and as the science continues to evolve, um, from a testing perspective, we we continue to update our reports. When we first launched uh, 12 years ago, we had a seven gene report. Okay. Two years later, we increased it to 13. Two years later, it was 45, and now it's 70. Wow! Uh, and so, as the science evolves, so too does um, uh, does the information that we we communicate and provide as part of the report. Now, some might say, "Okay, well, I'm going to wait for you know the hundred gene report." Yeah, yeah. Well, you can do that. But you can also start off with what you ha- what we know now, right? And so those who had our original seven gene report, they don't regret it. And there's actually an opportunity to upgrade as as mm. you know, the science uh, advances. So um, I think it's just a matter of deciding. And look, cost is a factor. Obviously, mm. not everyone can afford it. You know, the test, you know, depending on where you get it from, is anywhere from three to four hundred dollars. Mm. Uh, but it's a one time investment, right? Your genes mm. will never change. Mm-hmm. Some people spend more. Uh, uh, on supplements in a few months, and they perhaps yeah. don't even need that. Yeah. Um, every September, people some people line up to buy a thousand dollar iPhone, a new one every right. September. It just <laughs> yeah. depends on you know what you value, your priorities and values. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. But you know, obviously, affordability is a factor, and and if yeah. we can give the genetic test for free, I mean, we obviously offer it for researchers at a at a hugely discounted price, mm. um, and we've donated kits to you know various charities and other organizations. Mm. But you know, for some people just food insecurity is an issue, 
right? So mm-hmm. even if you give them a free genetic test, they can't afford, and especially with the current inflation and, and rising yeah. food costs, uh, it is becoming a bit of a struggle for some people just to, you know, to find nutritious food. But um, yeah, some nutritious food is actually not as expensive as some people think, right? When you think of a lot of, you know, legumes and, and um, you know, dried foods that mm-hmm. are actually very nutritious, um, on average for just about everyone, high in protein, high in vitamins and minerals. I mean, you know, I, I love eating different kinds of beans and, you know, even though they're, it's a pretty cheap, you know, food, even though I can afford more expensive food, like, mm-hmm. you know, a ribeye steak or something, mm-hmm. it's just yeah. not, uh, not, uh, not as healthy. So, um, again, yeah, a lot of factors that come into those kinds of decisions in terms of, uh, of eating better. Yeah. You said something, um, you said a few, many things interesting there, but one thing that stood out for me is we, we kind of need to go back and look at, you know, like you said, we have all these averages as far as, um, what we think of the implications of certain foods. And we need to kind of go back and challenge that you're going to need some, we're going to need some astute healthcare professionals to, to not be lazy here and to actually dig into it and, and really provide some personalized tailored advice to people right like that's a challenge like people like there are going to be healthcare professionals would be like nah you know on average everything is always on average when you get you know general healthcare advice from a family doctor or whatever um this is what this is the thing that makes me a bit pessimistic like i i I would love to be hopeful that people will challenge things and and but i'm not seeing it i don't know i don't know how you feel about it but yeah i mean whether it's an athlete or or uh or uh patient or a consumer yeah no one wants just the average i want to know what works for me yeah uh, yeah and uh, again this is this is i mean i hate to say this is the future because it's actually here and now today. Yeah, yeah. it is the present yeah. um but again it's not something that's just a passing fad it's just a matter yeah. of you know the more we learn how do we figure out which is the most effective way to apply this technology and to, you know, ultimately help us avoid, you know, uh, or at least delay, um, you know, can't avoid death, of course, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, chronic diseases, right? You want to live yeah. as, as uh, disease-free for as long as you can. Yeah. Um, I want to end off with our two questions. Before we go there, um, you know, there's other DNA testing uh, that can be done for other chronic diseases and such. Um, I mean, you may be biased in this case, but, but, uh, would you see that there's maybe if, if someone were to focus on, you know, the DNA testing for chronic diseases and such versus the DNA testing that your company provides, um, what would you suggest to people? And and what would you say is the validity and reliability of those DNA testing Mm -hmm. kits? So the tests for disease, uh, those are only reliable for what's called high penetrance genes. Uh, So these are genes that are basically that cause disease. So I don't know if you're familiar with like, you know, BRCA1 and BRCA2, BRCA. These are breast cancer causing genes. So if you have that genetic mutation, uh, then you have a 95 to 100% chance of getting breast cancer. Wow. And women who test positive oftentimes uh, elect to have a bilateral prophylactic mastectomy, removal mm-hmm. of both healthy breasts because mm-hmm. we know that they will probably develop breast cancer. And usually there's a family history uh, mm-hmm. of that, of early onset breast cancer. But what uh, what's interesting is about 90% of cases of breast cancer have nothing to do with those particular genes. 
They're due to a combination of multiple genetic markers and multiple environmental factors. Mm. So unless it's an early onset form of a disease, a genetic test for disease risk prediction is useless. Uh, and so this is where the modifier genes or the nutritional metabolic genes mm. are important because it tells you how your body it doesn't tell you your risk of a heart attack, but it tells you if you consume a large amount of coffee or more than four cups, then that'll increase your risk of, of a heart attack or salt sensitive hypertension, not just hypertension yeah. in general. Um, and so there have, you know, there are, you know, a lot of people are familiar with 23andMe. Yeah, uh, which really I think has done a great job in terms of kind of democratizing genetic information and popularizing it. Uh, but again, one needs to be cautious because you know they provide information on celiac disease, uh, but they only test two genetic markers, whereas you know we test six that provides a more comprehensive assessment. And I know someone personally who twenty three and Me told them you do not have the gene for celiac disease. And that made them kind of rule out the possibility. And then they got our test and it said, you have the highest risk. And mm. they ended up getting antibody tested and eventually biopsy confirmed celiac disease, where 23andMe told them, you do not have the gene for that. Interesting. So for any of your listeners, if you know you were ever concerned about celiac disease and you did a 23andMe test and they told you, you don't have that gene, you need to you know, kind of reevaluate that, speak to your physician about getting antibody tested. Um, so again, there are some companies that obviously provide good information, but others where it's absolutely dangerous and, and misleading that can cause uh, even greater harm. I know I've also been concerned with those test uh, with, with those DNA testing kits from a data perspective, like what happens with my data um, with your company, uh, what happens with folk, with the data that uh, that's gathered? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked that because we actually pride ourselves on on uh, a lot of things when it comes to data, privacy, security, confidentiality. Mm -hmm. Some consider it overkill, uh, but a we never um, sell that data. We don't, we don't even do research on individuals mm -hmm. because we don't need to, right? I'm I'm a professor at the University of Toronto. We have all kinds of of volunteers that come in and provide uh, complete information like mm. blood work. We actually mm. measure them, their body weight. We don't ask mm. them, you know, how much do you weigh? And um, so we don't do research on any of those uh, clients. In fact, the samples, there isn't even a, bar, uh, a requisition that comes in. We have practitioners say, I have the sample, but, you know, where do I write my patient's name, date of birth, email, all that kind of stuff. And we say, you don't need to. You just need mm. to mail that in, that barcode. We know it came from you. And you enter it into your secure portal and you know which patient that belongs to. Um, so even if a sample gets intercepted, no one can do anything because there's no identifier mm. to that. Mm. Uh, so and we also don't do whole genome scans where that can actually identify a, a identify a person, right? Mm. So whether it's for forensics or maternity mm -hmm. or any of those kinds of issues. So it doesn't identify the person. Um, yeah, so don't sell it. Don't do research on it. Can't be identified. And also there's no risk of ancillary findings like risk of, you know, uh, some disease where it's, oh, you happen to have this risk of early Alzheimer's. Sorry yeah. about that. Um, we don't test for those genes where there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. Uh, so it's, and, and there's no such thing 
at least from the nutrigenomics report, as like a good or bad result. It's just understanding if this is my result, this is what I have to do. If my mm-hmm. result is that, then that's what I have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, again, some distinctions between the different kinds of, of genetic tests. Yeah. Thanks, Ahmed. Uh, this has been, I really have enjoyed this uh, conversation and uh, I'm hoping everyone did as well. Um, are you okay if we shift to the last two questions I ask every guest? Sure, absolutely. So our five for dinner question, dead or alive, who are five people you'd want to have dinner with? <laughs> I know this, I've been asked this, I can't remember when before, and I always have a hard time because yeah. you know, you, you'd like to think that you know some of the great minds in, in, in history, like, you know, Galileo or Da Vinci mm. or Shakespeare, but I feel like you know if I'm having dinner with them now, they'd be more interested in you know what's this ring that you're wearing that tells you how many hours of sleep you had or <laughs> sure. you know what's that phone you have. So I don't know how much in modern times it would be that you know stimulating. Mm. Um, you know, and then again, I've heard people say, well, you know, some of you know the great leaders like, you know, Jesus or the prophet Muhammad mm. or Moses, mm. but you mm. know, dinner with them, uh, a little somber <laughs> might even be a bit depressing. I mean, I don't mean to offend anyone, but I, I don't know how much I'd like that. Sorry, I'm not answering your question. I'm trying to think of, yeah, you're ruling it out. Okay. doing it by process of elimination. Yeah. I, guess. And, yeah. you know, I personally love comedy. So I, yeah. I, you know, I could watch stand up comedy all day. And so I have a lot of favorite comedians um, Sebastian Maniscalco, Dave Chappelle, mm. Dave Brigetti. I think if I'm going to have dinner, you know, with a bunch of comedians, that's going to be a, a, a fun night. So for sure, I'm going to have to go with those. And, um, if I have to round up to the five of Kevin Hart's a pretty funny guy and Russell Peters. And, uh, yeah, I think that's about five there. Yeah. I love it. That's, that's great. Um, last question, uh, besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? Uh, well, I guess we all know taxes. That's another one, but, uh, <laughs> which I don't mind, by the way. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, people often think that, oh, because, you know, I've started a business that I'm, you know, all about, you know, tax cuts. And I think that's nonsense. I think in a civil mm. society, we need fair taxation. And I don't mind f- paying my fair share of taxes for the good of society. So, um, yeah, certain. Yeah, I guess just let me just stick with the simple taxes. And <laughs> sorry, it's not a glamorous response, but uh, no, that's okay. I, I often get from a lot of academics that they they know nothing. Um, uh, that yeah, that that's that's usually a common one. So I wasn't sure if you were going there, but yet yeah, I mean, it is tax season. We know that's for sure. I appreciate that perspective. I mean, I think that uh, that is a maybe a, a generalization people make of of of. Uh, business owners or, or is that, uh, they don't want to pay their fair share of taxes. They're always looking for ways to, to reduce their, uh, tax exposure. Um, but we all use public, public goods and services, right? And we all had to make our way up, uh, to where we are. And, uh, and we couldn't have done that without those, those public goods and services in some way, shape or form. So absolutely. I mean, I did my sabbatical in Copenhagen and, mm. uh, Denmark, I remember over 60% of my my uh, paycheck was gone to taxes, but I never saw a single homeless person in my time there. Yeah. And they often rank as, you know, one of the happiest countries in the world. So this idea that, you know, taxes are bad or it's just, it's just, um, it's unfortunate. And I think it just caters to, you know, individual greed and people need to, 
you know, get beyond that and look at, obviously we don't want to squander sure. you know, money and that's a different issue or misuse of tax money. But, yeah. you know, to say that, you know, we just, every politician just, you know, you never win by going on a platform of raising taxes. No. So, um, but I think I, I wish people would just kind of consider that, you know, to, to help, you know, other less fortunate people in our society, we need to mm-hmm. have these services and, uh, the only way to do that is largely through fair taxation. So yeah, uh, death and yeah. taxes, those are the two certainties. <laughs> I guess everything else I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ahmed, I really appreciate your time today. Really appreciate you walking me through um, the science um, and then and then your company and which, the testing. And uh, there's so much in there that I'll have to revisit and think about. So appreciate you making time. Uh, we'll put everything about uh, Ahmed's research work and uh, the company in our show notes. And hopefully you enjoyed yourself uh, today as well. Amen. I did. It was great chatting with you, Krish. Awesome. Uh, okay, well, thanks everyone for joining us. Like, subscribe, do all those wonderful things, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.